Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audio books. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your hand, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever you have. And here is the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace by today's guest, DT Max, or how about getting Infinite Jest, unabridged, or consider the lobster and other essays narrated by the late David Foster Wallace himself. Just about any book at Audible can be yours, free of charge. And if you do this, if you get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few nickels. That is enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a great deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here right. we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me wondering what this means. This is you wondering what that means. Thanks for tuning in and being here. I appreciate it. My name is Brad Listy. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm a little bit fatigued at the moment. I've been up since uh, about 4 a.m. My daughter woke me up, my two-year-old, and uh, you know I rocked her back to sleep. But then, of course, I couldn't get back to sleep myself. So uh, I did what I sometimes do when this happens. I went for a walk. You know, I laid in bed first for about an hour or an hour and a half, tossing and turning. And then I went for a walk to get out of the house so that I wouldn't make any noise. And I happened to be outside as the sun was coming up. 
and it was a very strange sunrise uh, that I witnessed from Sunset Boulevard. Uh, you know, just as the sun broke the horizon, uh, I, you know, I wasn't aware of this, but at this very moment, however the planets are aligned, however the Earth uh, happens to be orbiting, when the sun comes up in Los Angeles these days, it comes up at the dead center of the east end of Sunset Boulevard, uh, which is to say, if you're standing in the middle of Sunset Boulevard and you stare toward the eastern horizon, uh, this big flaming orange sun comes up at the end of the road. So if you're driving in that direction, it looks like you're driving directly into the sun and will soon be sucked into its raging nuclear heat. So it was pretty interesting looking. It was a, it was visually arresting is what I'm trying to say. And of course, the irony was sort of obvious in the realm of wordplay, the sun rising perfectly over Sunset Boulevard. And I took a picture of it and I put it on my Facebook wall. So if you're a friend of mine on Facebook, perhaps you've already seen this image. And I should add that I immediately questioned my own judgment after posting that photo via social media in keeping with my tendency to question everything I do on social media. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, my guest today is D.T. Max. He is the author of Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace. It is the first biography of the late David Foster Wallace, who died in 2008. Uh, you know, Wallace is obviously a, a huge figure in contemporary American letters. He means a lot to a lot of readers. And I'm very pleased to have a chance to talk with D.T. Max about this book and about David Foster Wallace's life and work. Uh, as some of you may know, uh, the book began as a piece in the New Yorker magazine. D.T. Max is a staff writer over there, and it sort of blossomed into a full-length biography out of that experience. So I think that pretty much sums it up, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with D.T. Max, the author of Every Love Story is a ghost story. I had I had begun the book as a New Yorker uh, piece shortly after David's death in September 2008, and I finished that piece around March. And I thought I learned a lot about David, you know. And it was a long piece; it was 10,000 words, um, and a lot of people, you know, felt that it really captured David as he was, and especially David as he was in his later years, because a lot of the piece was sort of focused on his inability to finish The Pale King and, you know, his his decline from there and his suicide. But it turned out, I mean, that I had really, that I knew nothing about David. You know, I knew, for instance, absolutely nothing about his relationship with women, which would turn out to be a very big part 
of his life. I did not know how long he had worked on The Pale King. I had no idea that he started The Pale King, you know, in 1996 or 1997, shortly after he'd written Infinite Jest. I mean, he may have written pieces of it even earlier, but I know he's working on it shortly after Infinite Jest. I had no idea that Infinite Jest itself had been begun when David was a graduate student. I mean, it shocked me. One of the things I found while working on Every Love Story is a Ghost Story is I found his Yado file for an application that he made in 1986. And, and there it is, Infinite Chest. It says, tentative title, Infinite Chest. I had no idea. I mean, it never occurred to me even working on that project um, so early. I didn't know that he'd gone on Nardal, which is the antidepressant, which both saved his life and sort of tormented him uh, when he went on it. I didn't know about his difficult relations with his mother, um, which would include, you know, a difficult period when he's in his early 30s where... I went to the, the Ransom Center archives where a lot of David's papers are kept, and I found some marginalia, some notes that he'd written in copies of books like um, The Drama of the Gifted Child, where he talks about how his mother has sort of put him on a pedestal. I didn't know any of that stuff. You know, on a more kind of broad, broad level, I don't think I realized how hard it was for David to be David. I don't think I realized how perpetually he suffered. I didn't think I realized... How, how every day he negotiated sort of the, the terms of his life. It just These were just things that were beyond the reach of the original article. Yeah, and, and then what about uh, your own particular fandom? You know, were you, are you a fan of David Foster Wallace's writing? Was that what brought you to write the original piece, or was it something that was assigned to you? Well, I mean, the answer is both. You know, David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, emailed me, which I had been living in, Alexandria, Virginia, and I remember that when David died, I must have been in some restaurant or something because I was watching like MSNBC, and on the zipper, that little sort of line of printed material that goes round, um, you know, if there's no visual, the story isn't big enough, they put it on the zipper, and the zipper said David Foster Wallace, and that was all I saw, and I thought, oh goody, David Foster Wallace has finally won an award, you know, he's finally getting the recognition that he deserves, because I was aware he'd never, you know, David Foster Wallace never won a major or even a minor book award. I mean, it seems bizarre in retrospect, but I mean, he never won a Pulitzer, he never won a National Book Award, a National Book Critics Circle Award. I don't actually know if he was even nominated for any of these things when I think about it. Anyway, so I got home and I found out, you know, through the internet what had actually happened, the sad story that he had committed suicide. And, oh, maybe a day or so later, uh, David Remnick emailed me and asked me if I wanted to you know, to, to write about what had what David's last months had been like. And I don't think I had any idea. You know, David was very private. I mean, I now know from the work on the book that part of this privacy was almost kind of obsessional and had to do a lot with not really liking who he was. Well, and there's also like there there's like an interesting contradiction that he himself uh, articulated, and I'm going to probably mess it up when I paraphrase it, but I think it had something to do with being a, a private exhibitionist. Yeah, yeah, I'm an exhibitionist who wants to hide. Right. But who fails at hiding, therefore I succeed. I think that's <laughs> what it is. I'm doing that from memory. And then the best part is he then cut that line from the interview. It was, it was um, so he didn't, he was, and this exhibitionist is, or not, he still wanted to hide a little bit better than to lay out the roadmap to who he was. Right. And that was the Larry McCaffrey yeah. interview, which is great. The, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, um, the Rosetta Stone interview for, for David, you know, it's where things start. Well, anyway, you know, so I received that email from from David Remnick, and 
I did want to write about David. You know, and the book that I had loved my whole life, uh, David was only, were he to be alive, would be one year younger than I am. And so he and I are contemporaries. And when David first published The Broom of the System in 1987, his editor looking for reviews sent me uh, an advanced reading copy, which I devoured. And over the years, I've reread that book every so often. I mean, I think generally when I was just feeling a little bit like I needed just, you know, just a really good, complicated laugh. Um, there's a line in in a letter that David writes to, he writes this letter to his um, 12-step sponsor at one point, recalling his own time when he's uh, when David is in, a, in the um, halfway house uh, and how he's worried he's going to start drinking and smoking pot again. And he says that the... Um, that, that his his friend, the AA sponsor, had had um, written to him and saved him from, you know, basically failing in his sobriety with what he calls a good MFA caliber trope. Well, Room of the System was my good MFA caliber trope. Whenever I needed it, there it was. And so I was shocked in working on the New Yorker piece to find out that David disowned the first book referring to it as something in a letter to Jonathan Franz, and he says it could have been written by a very smart 14-year-old. I mean, now that I think about it, I don't even know that he says very smart. I think he just says a smart 14-year-old. I think it's a great example of how much David undervalued his work, but it's also, you know, I had, I had been having the wrong sort of orgasm all those years, as, <laughs> as they say in Manhattan. So, you know, one of the incredible pleasures, what I like as a writer, what I've always liked as a writer is to learn. So if you look at my work in The New Yorker and the earlier book that I wrote on fatal familial insomnia, and this book, you know, what they all have in common is learning. I don't like to take on a project where I'm already an expert. So one of the great pleasures of writing the book about David um, is that I got to read things I had maybe read once not so carefully and really get into them. And one of my tests was, you know, for whether this was the kind of book that I wanted to write, one of the, one of my tests was, like, would I be bored with Infinite Jest by the end, you know, when I'd had to read it three times? And You answer, read it three times? Yeah, yeah. And that puts me, like, I'm a piker compared to some people. I mean, some people three times just to get going on it. Um, yeah, I mean, you can read it more, and you can get more out of it. For me, it was, you know, the happy answer is it wasn't enough. I mean, I could happily have read it. Another time, I mean, it's just a completely fascinating a book, and, and a book that I grew more deeply into as I was working on Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. And then the really sort of interesting thing from my point of view is I feel a little bit now like I've passed through Infinite Chest, and the book I really want to spend some time with and really get deep into is Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, you know, the short story collection that follows Infinite Chest, and which is some way, in some ways is, you know, the book that I mean, David, I think in a letter, a letter I quote in the biography says that it's a book that's mean to practically everybody you can be mean to. Um, but there's a lot in that book that I don't think I really have picked up yet. Um, a lot autobiographically? Oh, no, 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 no. This isn't professional reading. No, God, no. I mean, I think I think I've mined that baby fine. <laughs> no, no. I mean, a lot, a lot about who David was as a creative person, a lot about where he was carrying his project as a fiction writer. I mean, the things that really, really matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then what about... Well, his- which, by the way, puts me on course for oblivion, you know, when I'm sort of in the old age home. <laughs> <laughs> so, or, or everything and more. <laughs> and, and what about, uh, you know, assessing David uh, David's intelligence? Because this is something, like, I, f- I think I'm uh, decidedly average by comparison. I think a lot of people, when they pick up David Foster Wallace's books or they read them in interviews, 
uh, it becomes pretty clear that he's operating uh, at a pretty high level intellectually. But at the same time, I think that there is a possibility that um, that intelligence could be fetishized and uh, maybe overstated or, or held up as some sort of, um, I don't know, uh, ideal or do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, did yeah, you, of course. How I do mean, you, how do you, how do you think of that having written this book? Like, how do you look at it? Well, I mean, I think the question can even be made more complicated, which is, um, you know, is intelligence the most important ingredient when you're writing a novel? And I can adduce on sort of on the contrary side, no less an authority than Brett Easton Ellis, who has recently become well known for sort of tweets saying that David Foster Wallace has the most overblown reputation since I don't know. Yeah, I was I had I was going to ask you about this. Yeah, since the most overblown reputation since I don't know Austin Dobson. I don't really know who to say for the the, the, <laughs> the other other side of that end, but Joyce Kilmer. Anyway. Um, but what, what Brett said earlier, shortly after David died, which I find kind of more intriguing, is he said, you know, I never really read David Wallace with any pleasure. It's possible that he was just too smart to write novels. I find that a more interesting question. You know, there's a, there's a part of novel writing is pretty humdrum. I mean, part of novel writing is the orchestration of characters and the movement of these characters, even in a fairly non-standard book like Infinite Jest, you know, the movement of these characters around a kind of a chessboard. Um, and that's really not, I think, the work of a genius. You know, the chess is a work of a genius, or at least a certain kind of genius. I think that, you know, part of what's so interesting about David is, in my heart, what I believe is that David had the wrong kind of intelligence to be a novel writer, but he succeeded as a novel writer anyway because he had so much intelligence, because he was so massively... I mean, I, I think the stories about how smart David was are true, I mean, you know, it's a little bit, I mean, the thing about intelligence is it's, there are, there are, as we all know now, different kinds of intelligences, but in that certain kind of, you know, historic white lab coat slide rule, faster at, faster at the dinner table with the answer, off to the best colleges, graduate work done in fewer hours than other people take to do their graduate work so that, you know, said individual is already sitting at the bar while the rest of us are still sweating away. There, David really was off off the charts. I mean, everything I learned for every love story is a ghost story really confirmed that, you know, well, one, that he was insanely intelligent, and two, that he really worked to be a great student. Well, see, that was part of it that surprised yeah. me, because I, I knew, having read him, that he was obviously a huge Yeah, yeah, a I can see mind. in saying that I may have stumbled off of the straight and narrow, but I, to me, it's not, it's not really inconsistent. I mean, he had focus, um, Partially because I think because of his his mental difficulties, I don't think anything else felt quite so alive to David as as study. Here we're mostly talking about his years as an undergraduate at Amherst, and to a lesser extent, a graduate student at at Arizona. But you know what I what I feel is that you see this intelligence that was really probably better designed for other things, and especially during his years at Amherst, he goes to Amherst, he's lonely, he has two breakdowns in short order, becomes a fiction writer publishes a really, really precocious first story called The Planet Trilophon while still at school. And in the last, you know, three, four, five months of his of his um, time at Amherst, he writes The Broom of the System, this, you know, five, six hundred page comic work, which, you know, to which I owe much of the much of my reading pleasure in my twenties and thirties. Um, but what I was gonna say is, you know, I, I think that where David's fiction is strongest and weakest is sort of still along the seams of that original somewhat technical intelligence. And for instance, if you, I mean, 
I believe one reason that David, through much of his time, had trouble with issues like plagiarism, most famously when he's working on the story collection Girl with Curious Hair, and the, one of the stories, the David Letterman story called My Appearance, is about to go to press uh, in magazine form at Playboy, and one of the editors is watching TV, and to his amazement discovers that much of the dialogue in um, My Appearance, which was actually not, it was called Late Night with Letterman, I think, when it was a Playboy. Anyway, uh, much of the dialogue was lifted from an actual interview that Susan St. James, the actress, had given to Letterman. Well, I mean, how could a person of David's creativity and imagination have done this? And I think one of the answers is, you know, David was creative without being enormously inventive, and I think that's one of the sort of aspects of his intelligence that I think bears a, a, a close examination. You know, in a lot of ways, one of my favorite quotes from the book is the student who is, I think, in one of David's Amherst classes. He teaches briefly at Amherst after he graduates. I think it's Amherst where this takes place. Or maybe it's his first years as a teacher at Illinois State University. And one young woman described the way that they studied fiction together as being like reverse engineering the stories. And I've always thought, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. David, in those sort of unhappy months at home, once he was on leave from Amherst, I, I think he probably sat there, and I think he, you know, there's a famous story that I guess Joan Didion tells about herself, that she learned to write by typing out Hemingway's stories. Do you know that story? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've actually heard of that from, I mean, Hunter Thompson, I want to say, did that with F. Scott yes, Fitzgerald. Right, and and, t- exactly. Those are the two, the two examples that I knew of as well. You know, I think David was just so much brighter than Joan Didion that he didn't have to sit there and type them out. I think it was enough for him to kind of read them over and over with that amazing, isolating, analytic, building blocks kind of mind um, that he was able to, you know, figure out in Room of the System a novel that was in some ways a lot like everybody else's novels of that genre, most notably Thomas Pynchon, but actually isn't a Pynchon novel. I'm, you know, the, the great sort of rap on on the Room of the System is it's Pynchonian, and if you look at the reviews that, that accompanied that book, and you have to remember we're in 1987 when memories of the 70s are really strong. So that there's a whole generation of critics who ha- who are missing, you know, they're missing what once was, which was the era of John Barth and Bartholomew and Pynchon. And they all call it Pynchonian. I've always thought they were wrong, because, I mean, one of the things that I find so noteworthy about Pynchon, you know, is there's not an ounce of emotion in those books that I can find. And yet, actually, Lenore Beadsman, the protagonist of The Broom of the System, I find a very emotionally complete woman. And my suspicion though I certainly don't attempt to prove it in every love story is a ghost story, my suspicion is that David must have copied in his, into his brain portraits of emotionally um, memorable female characters and then written one. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, and just the fact that he went with a female protagonist in his first book, and I mean, like that choice, I don't know, it's almost, maybe he was just trying to give himself a bigger challenge. It seems like the kind of thing he might have done. You know? Yeah, although he remembers at the very beginning of his writing career. I mean, there is no writing before that, really. So a bigger challenge than what is the question? Yeah, I mean, or just to try to write outside. I mean, who knows? You know, I'm just thinking that it must have been, uh, it seemed like kind of a game to him. Uh, not, that, not to reduce yeah, it. Yeah, for but, sure. You know. But well, this is, I mean, the whole premise is a game-like premise. Right, right. So, um, and let's talk, I guess, in like kind of a related way about uh competition. And, and this sort of relates not only to his achievements as a student, but I think it also relates to what we were talking about earlier with regard to Breddy's, the Nellis, 
um, which kind of brought it back into my mind when I watch these guys, you know, I, I watch Brett making all these um, comments on his Twitter feed about, you know, Wallace and people who like Wallace. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of like uh, brute criticisms and some things, um, you know, that personally. Well, we, we should we should mention that for whatever reason, they actually liked the biography. Yeah, we should. Yeah. We should. Yeah. He said it was an elegantly written. And, uh, and, and he said compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, you know, but there's also like anyway, a back to the big point. Yeah. Well, but no, but there was a line, you know, just to sort of turn this on me a little bit uh, where he said that there's a whole generation of readers who read David Wallace and uh, congratulate themselves for feeling smart or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And when I read that, I sort of winced because I, I, I think if I'm being totally sodium pentothal honest, there yeah. have been moments where you read Wallace and you can feel, you do feel better about yourself or like you learn something, which I don't think is necessarily a terrible thing, but I don't know. It's, it seemed to hit at some degree of truth with regard to like the general adoration out there. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just trying to play fair. I think it goes so much deeper, though. Um, you know, what I loved about Brett's comments is that it really replicates a war that went on within Wallace himself, which was the battle between irony, you know, and sincerity. So, right. You know, Brett is kind of like the, the who I think enjoys this role is almost like the devil standing on David Foster Wallace's shoulder in 1988 or 89. Like, you can, <laughs> you can, you can. You can still do all these things, you know. You can, first of all, you can you can still do harmful substances, but meta, but metaphorically, you can still be a you you can still use irony to cleanse. You know, I mean, I think Brett's. I haven't talked to him about this, but I would think his argument would be that the ironic stance of his novels is more cleansing and sincere and cuts away the garbage and the bullshit in our world in a way that David's you know Dudley Do Right stance. Um, you know, fails to do that. David David's stance really covers over insincerities under the sort of you know under the rubric of identification. You know, the whole twelve step idea that you identify. And also, I mean, you know, just to add um, firepower to Brett's canon, not that he would particularly need it for me. You know, David's life. I mean, this is one of the things we have to, I think, acknowledge about the book that I wrote. I mean, David's life. If you look on it purely as a life uh, and ignore the writing and ignore the lessons that David is trying to teach us, which I'm, I think that's the wrong way to read it, but I mean, it's not, it's far from a perfect life. You know, David can be telling you to be mindful and fully cognizant at the same time as, you know, I mean, one moment in the book that sticks out very much for me is that there's a period when David in the mid 90s is living in Bloomington, Illinois, and going through a sort of succession of girls with. Um, you know, the sort of basically the aplomb of of this, you know, of the of this of the guilty feeling bachelor, but for all that, no less, you know, no less determined never to have an, a true involvement than if he hadn't felt guilty about. It. I mean, these are things he actually explores in brief interviews with hideous men. But I mean, for all that, in this period, David Foster Wallace is supposedly, you know, a sincere individual rejecting irony in the world. His, I mean, his actual personality and relationships is, is, you know, really not very different from his personality and relationships before he was in 12-step programs, before he had reformed his stance as a writer. I mean, in other words, the, the guy who wrote Girl with Curious Hair is still doing the dating. Right. <laughs> well, and, yeah, I mean, and it's, people are just complicated, I think, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think that's right. Uh, you know, you were saying about people patting each, other, patting each other on the back for feeling smart. You know, I mean, I think, why not? I mean, when you said that, I thought, yeah, I mean, that, look, there's a social function to literature. There's always been a social function to literature. My, my son, 
like fell in love with Harry Potter when he's he was I think seven at the time when his best friend, a young girl, gave him a copy of Harry Potter and said she loved it. Like he had never fallen in love with a book, or a girl, or a girl for that matter. Right. Well, I think he he may have, but, but then she gave him the book and he fell in love with the book. So my point being, you know, to strip literature of of that kind of pat you on the back function, I think is to strip it of something that's very deep. Within it, I mean, isn't that part of what 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 buoyed Pynchon during those years? Isn't it part of what buoyed Salinger, um, Hemingway? You know, I mean, it's one of those things paradoxically that the the Kindle or the Nook are going to kill, which is this quality of you know sitting there in a cafe or on the subway and seeing someone else reading a book that you're reading, and thinking that you're forming a kind of communal a communal mind, you know, that you're experiencing the same thing um, that this other person is. Uh, experiencing, therefore, you you know you could have a relationship with this other person, whether it's an intimate relationship or just a conversation. You know that is a function of literature, and that there should be books. You know, and and, and before David, there were certainly books that some of which he read, like um, Godel Escherbach, or um, you know, uh, well, Pynchon himself, but but um, I don't know Stephen Hawking's books. You know, that people are always patting themselves on the back, saying, you know, I finished this. I'm a a smart person. Clearly, I mean, if the re- if the response ends there, that's not sufficient. But but I don't see the harm in that. On the contrary, yeah. Well, and and then what about um, competitive drive? You know, like uh, one of the things that struck me when, in reading about David's life and about uh, his approach to it is that he was very competitive. Like you, you know, he really wanted to be great, and he wanted people to recognize his talent. I think. Uh, both things are probably fairly normal, but there's a strong, uh, I don't know, it felt very pronounced in him the more that I read your book. And then I think about his friendship uh, with Jonathan Franzen in particular. You know, both these guys are very talented. Um, there's obviously, com- you, know, comp- you know, competition happening between them. There's the competition that you alluded to earlier um, between David and Brett Easton Ellis. You know, like it just exists a lot in literature period. And I think in, uh, you know, in my own little personal library here, I think of reading uh, David Markson books and all the trash talking that exists in those late books between uh, artists and people from the literary firmament. And it always strikes me like how catty it can get. Right. right. And so I'm wondering, like, you know, having written this and having, um, you know, thought about David and and his life and work um, in great detail, do you think that having that level of competitive nature when it comes to your art is a necessity to uh, literary or artistic uh, greatness. Just one one point before I think about that a little bit is that you know I don't think that actually uh, David felt competitive with Brett Easton Ellis. I think that David saw his universe as those sort of you know big academic white novelists like Richard Powers and Pynchon, um, Volman. Franzen, um, Rick Moody, Jeff Eugenides, you know, these were his, this was the group he felt competitive with. I don't, you know, I don't think that really Ellis was on David's radar screen after David's a graduate, when David's a graduate student at the University of Arizona in 1985, 86, 87, he does read Less Than Zero and he's impressed with it because David loved voice and Less Than Zero the Ellis novel is very voicey for the same reason David admired Bright Light's Big City because it was so voicey. 
I think that probably where those where those two novels went, Macaroni and Alice Afterward, was probably not so interesting to David, just because his own journey was really so different, and because he was moving so fast along the particular lines that he was moving on. I mean, Wallace always wanted to sort of endorse, embrace the muchness of America. And if you weren't trying to embrace the muchness of America, you really weren't on his radar screen. And if that muchness was, you know, was other than... I mean, David had a fairly... David moved within a fairly narrow, competitive universe. That's not to say he didn't read other stuff. For instance, I mean, David loved Tom Clancy novels, you know. He did this list for, um, I think it was... uh, a North Carolina paper in what must have been the early zero zeros where he listed his 10 favorite novels and one of them was Fear of Flying, which <laughs> was pretty funny. And I have to admit, honestly, that's everyone asked me about that. And I can't, except for the, the likelihood that his, that David's parents had, had it on the bookshelf and David pulled it down and jerked off to it. I haven't a clue. <laughs> Wait, that's, is that the Erica Jean book? Yeah, the Erica yeah. Jean book, you know, which was a, a great aide de masturbation of that. <laughs> of that generation. And I say this with some knowledge because I actually did come upon a piece of paper where David wrote down his favorite jerk-off novels and <laughs> from his parents' bookshelf. And one was Fanny Hill. And I can't remember the other one may have been, um, you know, maybe it was The Evergreen Reader or something like that, one of those, um, the, the dirty books of the 60s, that back when, you know, pornography and revolution held hands. <laughs> <laughs> but you were asking me about competition. Um, yeah, like who, you know, who did he feel competitive yeah, with? Well, I was saying that that, that that universe of sort of tight-sphinctered white writers is certainly his his world and where he's facing off um, and whom he's facing off against. I think that, you know, David would have benefited, certainly in the end of his life, from having more you know, more confidence, more writers with whom he could relate more easily. You know, I don't think he showed drafts of Pale King to anybody. Now, I, I could be wrong about that, but I don't believe his wife saw them. And Franzen, John Franzen did not see them. As he told me, they were not the kinds of friends who exchanged drafts. That wasn't, you know, there was way too much, there was way too much anxiety and, and you know, heat between them to give one another things they thought weren't done. David had a great friendship with Mark Costello, his college roommate and also a novelist, but I don't think he sent Mark Costello material later in his life. And David trusted very much an editor named Steve Moore, who was the editor of the Review of Contemporary Fiction at one point and now has written, um, is working on a two-volume history of the novel. Extraordinarily bright guy, but Stephen didn't get material from David later in life. So, you know, what what I feel is that he lacked readers and that whatever... Um, function readers might have had for him in later life, nobody fulfilled, and I think that was partially, partially um, a result of his intense competitiveness. And I also really think that for David, that competitiveness came out of a fairly unfortunate part of himself, where his esteem was always really, really low and fragile. He didn't like criticism. I mean, even when he's an undergraduate, he doesn't like criticism. And in fact, one of the things that I try to show in every love story is a ghost story is that he would often take criticism, for instance, the criticism of his Amherst creative writing teacher or the criticism of some of the University of Arizona MFA professors. And he would actually exaggerate how much they didn't like his writing in order to make himself mad enough to finish his writing. <laughs> I mean, it was useful for him to feel like they were really fucking with him. No, it's like Michael Jordan, like you know, like misper- you know, perceiving the things that people are saying and kind of blowing them up into these insults in order to fuel themselves. Well, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's 
Yeah, I mean, it's very much an athlete's stance. It's like, you know, if I can get angry at this guy, you know, I can beat him. But it's a sort of odd stance to take with your teachers, who at least putatively are there to, you know, to, to help you, to bring out your voice. The, the teachers David esteemed were the ones who kind of got out of his way and let David be David and provided kind of the, the, the fondness and often the snacks, you know, that would allow David to write what he needed to write, for instance, when he was at... Um, when he's a teacher in um, at Pomona, Claremont, you know, in Claremont, uh, towards the end of his life, there's a head of department named Rena Fraden who who lures him to Pomona, partially with the promise that he won't have to teach very much, partially with the promise that you know he'll be left alone, you know. And one of the things they do is they watch um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer Tuesday evenings, I think at at eight or nine. I mean, that's her main function for David is to, you know, provide a place for him to watch one show <laughs> a week. She certainly doesn't read his manuscripts, and, and he wouldn't have wanted her to read his manuscripts. I mean, it just paints him into a kind of a corner when things aren't going well. Well, and then what about, you know, as he got later into his life and he achieved, uh, you know, his place in the literary world, and obviously he had a bunch of very impassioned readers, did it get harder for him uh, to function socially, did he, I mean, did he? Did he I mean, I, I think you alluded to this in the book at some point where, you know, he would, it would be hard for him to go out, especially to any kind of literary event, and feel like he had any space to move. I mean, it had to have been. I mean, not not just literary events. He um, he changes his phone number all the time, um, and he, you know, he says to John O'Brien, who's the head of the Dolky Archive, shortly after Infinite Chess comes out, he says he says something like, you know, I don't know who to trust anymore. I don't know who to believe anymore. Because everybody's being so, so damn nice to him. Um, I think this was all a problem for him. You know, I think, I think as he would have said, you know, there are these wonderful letters that I came into possession of, which are in the book, you know, excerpted or quoted in the book, where he talks about what he calls the statue. And the statue is this image of himself, this, this idealized version of himself as a writer, who's sort of constantly looking over David's shoulder and preventing him from doing you know, the writing he's meant to do. In other words, it's some combination, and he's never quite sure what, of his own high standards and high expectations for himself and the world's high expectations for him. And it just saps all the joy out of his writing. I mean, he says this in these letters that, you know, since the, since basically says, you know, since the time when he published The Broom of the System, the moments where he felt he'd done truly good writing were few and far between. You know, interestingly, accepting, I mean, not not saying that Infinite Chest was a period of pleasure and easy writing. And so, you know, anything that causes the statue to harden near, you know, to draw near bothers him. And the things that cause the statue to draw near are certainly the praise of his colleagues in the professorial world. It's no use for other professors, really, unless they play tennis. Um, and then he also, you know, the the kind of love mugging that you get when you're a well-known writer like David was from MFA students or people who see you at readings, um, you know, web enthusiasts, that kind of thing. He just, I mean, he couldn't bear it. You know, he would, he would flee from it as if it was pure poison. There's a time when somebody from the Wallace L. Listserv goes up to David and I think briefly just says how important his work has been for all everyone on the Listserv. And David says for his own you know, I forget the exact phrase, but for his own mental reasons, he has to pretend something like that doesn't exist. I mean, he draws no—he gets no pleasure from these things. You know, what I mean, again, it comes down to the fact that for David, self-esteem was just never anything 
he achieved, I mean, after all those years of the 12-step program, I think he achieves a kind of adequate stasis, he, a, a sort of a, an ability to act as if he had self-esteem or adequate self-esteem to make good decisions. But I don't think he ever possesses, you know, ordinary, even ordinary levels of self-esteem, even, you know, and I think the problem is with, he's not the first writer to have this experience, you know, that that incredible praise he gets worsens the problem. It doesn't, you know, the the, the, the praise pours through the holes in the bucket. The bucket never fills up. Well, yeah, and he can always, like, poke holes in it and second-guess it. And, you know, he's got this brilliantly clever mind, you know. And so he can sort of trick himself into anything, I would imagine. And, uh, you know, you talked about the 12-step program. And one of the parts of the book that I found um, both interesting and touching was the talk about uh, the humility that that brought to him. Like, you know, when he finally goes into the recovery process, like something that struck me as being – I don't know. Uh, it, it made him make more sense to me, I guess, was the fact that, you know, for as, as smart as he was and for as many things as he could do with his brain, um, you know, he couldn't outrun these problems of his. And then he found himself in this halfway house surrounded by people who, um, you know, might not have the education or the talents that he had had. Uh, but he was right that, you know, right there with them. And he learned to really appreciate them. Can you talk a little bit about like what they might've brought to his life and what like the recovery community did for him in his life? Yeah. I mean, it was his life, you know, well, the life that most people knew as David Foster Wallace's life really was just a tiny piece of his life. I mean, he was basically a guy who spent, you know, for much of his career, he teaches one day or two days a week. So he's on campus one day or two, two days a week for a few hours. So where is he the rest of the time? I think his colleagues always assumed he was home writing, and to some extent he was, he was at least home trying to write. But he also, you know, went to, regularly went to 12-step meetings, and he was a sponsor for other people in the 12-step meetings. The sponsor is, you know, a sort of more established person who tries to help a newer um, recovering addict, you know, with everything about their life, from the most practical questions to, you know, to questions about faith in God. He must have been a great sponsor. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, I mean, I mean, I, that's an interesting question. I, I can tell you that you know, David was an impassioned teacher for sure, who put, gave more attention to writing than any teacher I've ever heard of. But I don't know that I would, for instance, describe David as a great teacher because I think one quality that a really great teacher has is a great teacher knows when to absent him or herself from the from the conversation, and that's really what David's great teachers, like this woman Rena Fraden who I spoke of, you know, paradoxically, these, in David's case, they were teachers who knew how to get out of the way. But even in a more, with or, more ordinary students, you know, David was so much and completely himself, and he so controlled the terms of the class. So, for instance, I think I try to show this in every love story with some interesting um, kind of notes. I, I, I was uh, given by one, some of the students there some of the notes that David wrote when he was angry, you know, notes he wrote chiding them. And, you know, again and again, the note is, you know, you may think that writing a clever, tricked-up, postmodernist story is your way to success, but, you know, bub, you better think again. I've, I've been there, and I can tell you that it only leads to, you know, despair and emptiness and, and the need for more postmodern fiction, you know. And the best thing that could ever happen to you is that, you know, is for you never to get published until you're 40 and you've written a couple hundred stories. Okay, so that was obviously David's life experience speaking, right? But is that actually... You know, everybody's life experience. Uh, there's a writer, for instance, I'm thinking of in particular, was in a class of David's, and he wrote a kind of voicey postmodern story early on. You know, he's a graduate student, uh, and it's great. I mean, a, a very gifted writer. And David takes him outside with his face sort of furrowed with 
just sort of, sort of, you know, with concern and says, I've never, I think the phrase, I've never witnessed a collective dick sucking like that before, <laughs> <laughs> referring to the response of the other members of the class and proceeds really to bust the guy's chops for the rest of the semester. And then, uh, the, 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 the writer, the student, his name is Ben Slotky, told me this story. David kept inviting him out to play tennis, even though, I mean, Ben doesn't play tennis. I mean, David wanted to invite him out to play tennis to, you know, to whip his ass. Um, so, you know, there's an example for all the people David helped of a, of a writer, I think, who would have been, you know, better off if he hadn't been in David's class. If he'd been with somebody more like the people who worked successfully, you know, teaching um, the people who were successful teachers for David, the kind of writer who sort of, you know, felt less competitive and less as if everybody was living his life, you know, it's a kind of a classic error of parents to assume that your children are living a version of your life uh, and you must... Wait, you mean them. they're not? Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and uh, David never had children, so I don't think he ever really quite understood this. I mean, that has to be counterbalanced against, you know, the thousands of hours he put in covering pretty ordinary students' uh, stories with the kind of attention that, you know, they would never get again. And I'm sure that did help their writing, and it may have made them more confident and more capable as writers, whether they became professional writers or not. You know, I mean, David had a long career teaching. Um, and he certainly put wonderful books on the, on the reading list for these, for these students as well. But, you know, it's, it's difficult. When you, whenever you try to summarize something about David, it gets, it gets hard. I mean, for David, it was always hard. You know, that's the whole, the whole meta life of David Foster Wallace is as soon as you make a statement, a pretty good counter statement can be placed against it, you know, and so on and so forth. There's sort of endless procession of, of mirrors, of funhouse mirrors. You know, it gets very, very, as he would love to have said, fraught very quickly when you start asking yourself, you know, was David a good teacher? Was David um, a good sponsor? I think it probably would have depended on who who he was sponsoring. But I think it is fair to say that he committed himself to sponsoring in a very deep way, just as he committed to being sponsored in a very deep way. I mean, his real, you know, one of the battles, one of some of the work of the, of the biography was, you know, these 12-step programs are private. And it was work to earn the trust of the people who are involved in these programs so that I could learn a little bit about David um, in in recovery. Because, I mean, it was a huge part of his life. It would be like if somebody, it'd be almost like, you know, I mean, like half of him wasn't there if you didn't write about this part of his life. Right. Well, and then, then as an extension of that, what about David Foster Wallace's approach to religion uh because that's like you know that's an interesting thing for a mind of of uh, a mind like his to sort of confront and uh your book uh, addresses it i'd love to hear you just talk a little bit about what you discovered uh, about him and uh you know how he approached all that stuff because religion did play at least some oh yeah part it, in his life faith certainly did i think david was somebody who was in that classic problem of the intellectual that he was too smart to believe in religion and too, and too needy not to. And his kind of compromise, you know, because, I mean, he saw that his intellectual life wasn't filling the place that faith um, should, you know, should take. And not only that, I mean, he had, he had the very practical example that the only reason he'd gotten sober, the only reason he was alive, as he would have put it without any doubt, was because he'd entered a 12-step program whose main, you know, one of whose steps is to turn yourself over to a higher power. Right. I mean, David Dell, there's a number of ways. One of my favorite quotes is that he used to love to quote one of the sort of old Boston 12-steppers who are known as the Crocodiles in Infinite Chest. 
who used to say, it, it's not whether you believe, asshole. It's about getting down on your knees and asking. <laughs> I just think that's the best. Uh, I mean, that was, you know, that was one solution was humor. I mean, I think David was enormously funny. Uh, and he dealt with problems. We we tend to know the agonized David, the David who says, you know, if I'm nice to you, am I really just being nice to you in order to feel nicer about myself so I can go around saying what a nice guy I am? Isn't that actually making me a worse guy? You know, that's classic. That's the David we all know, the meta David. But he's all just funny. I mean, he begins as a gag writer at Amherst with Sabrina, the humor magazine. Even before that, I found material in, in the... Uh, archives at texas you know where he tries out little pretend jingles when he's maybe 10 or 11 years old you know one is for burpo soda you know the taste of wetness <laughs> and i just think you know little david wallace must have just howled at that one you know the taste of wetness i so and that part of him never disappears i mean he's there's a, there's a letter that uh that i mentioned later in the book when he's worried about whether um viking his publisher or penguin really his publisher will like Girl with Curious Hair, the second, his first story collection, his second book. And he says, I hope they won't regard it as, you know, some sort of sidetrack until I can get back, on, you know, till I can get back and do what I should be, what they think I should be doing, which is gag writing, you know, till, telling gags, I think is the phrase he, he uses. So he even saw that there was this risk that he would regard it primarily as a humorist. And I think really if his life had been a little bit different, he might easily have been a writer for, you know, a Saturday Night Live or Comedy Central. I mean, I think that's the really... I was going to say, maybe he would have been happier. <laughs> you know, like. I mean, the happiness was not within reach. We always have to remember, I think, with David, that he had a severe biological depression that was treated with a strong drug and that did treat it successfully within the terms of how successful you can be treated. But the idea that he might have like one day just escaped into being you know, somebody who wrote skits on Saturday Night Live, I think was the kind of <laughs> fantasy that David entertained to make himself feel in some ways more normal than he was in terms of his ability to sort of adapt to, you know, the world as as he found it. I do know that years later he was invited on to, to he was invited to go to Saturday Night Live and and watch, you know, from the green room or whatever those sort of there's a room where you can sort of sit when you're not really part of the audience and watch it being put together. And David declined. The implication being it would just be a little bit too close to, you know a little bit it would be a little bit too close to what he had fictionalized in my appearance. And what he'd spent so much of his life combating, you know, which was a kind of ironic, playful business of Saturday Night Live. I think that at his, in his heart, he saw how easily he could have been one of those one of those writers, even when it was long past the time when realistically, you know, he could have been. I mean, these things were so easy for him. You have to remember, again, we talk about intelligence. Certainly, parody for David was something he could do on the back of an envelope on the way to the bathroom. I mean, it was really... I've always felt like that wonderful piece he wrote in Harper's magazine called Tennis, Trigonometry, and Tornadoes, which is retitled, given back its original title, and when it's collected as Derivative Sport in Tornado Alley, I've always felt he, he must have gotten a call from Harper saying, do you have anything for us? Must have, you know, gone into um, a, a cafe with a pack of cigarettes. This is in you know, 1990 in Boston, I think, and just written the thing, <laughs> just sent it in. I mean... All that delicacy of phrasing, all those masterful clauses, all that finely drawn, if not accurately drawn, <laughs> um, kind of, you know, mise-en-scene of Illinois Prairie, you know, the wonderful descriptions of the tennis court, of his own tennis game, of how, you know, of, of the winds wreaking havoc with the balls, all of that, I believe, he cooked up. I was all just sitting in him, you know. 
And they just they just opened the tap on that one. Well, you know, but you you know, you talked earlier about um, you know the process and how Infinite Jest had been brewing for a long, long time, and how uh, the Pale King he had been working on since I you know I believe you said 1996 or whatever it was. Uh, and then you think about the 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 way that he actually worked, and and this is something I'd love to hear you talk about as well. Is uh, you know his, his actual process, his level of discipline, uh, the the fact that these things would gestate. And that he would kind of wrestle with them over time. And then it seemed at least to some extent that he would sit down and would get into these cycles where he could, you know, write relatively quickly. I mean, when you think about Infinite Jest in terms of its word count relative to how long it took him to write it, it's an amazing level of output. Yeah, especially when you think that, you know, much of that time things weren't going well. I mean, you have to, with any writer, you have to start lopping off, you know, the three months to get it up to speed. Um, The long period of time dealing with the editor and the copy edit. Um, you know, the month lost, in his case, to the death of a dog, you know, <laughs> the, the two weeks lost to the end of a relationship with a girlfriend. And I have those fractions deliberately, and, you know, twice as long for the dog. Um, he, you know, one of the kind of really interesting, complicated parts about David, for somebody who lives so recently, is he doesn't leave an entirely clear literary trail uh, in in other words, I wrote about this a little bit on a on a blog item on, at the New Yorker not so long ago. You know, we have his archive of some papers that came to the University of Texas that are really quite exciting, involving drafts of Infinite Chest. And we ha- and I have his letters. I mean, I, I must have had two hundred of his letters just given to me privately, not not in any archive. And they all and from time to time he describes his work his work habits. Um, and he'll say things like, you know, he's been working constantly and feeding the trash, you know, um, giving you this impression that he is always productive even when the when the productivity doesn't have an aim. Um, but we don't actually have really drafty stuff from David. If you look at the material that's in the Infinite Chest files, it's all really good. And if you look at the Pale King material that's going to be made available soon... I don't think you'll find anything that looks like a first draft in the sense of like somebody who's still finding their way through a story. So there's two possibilities, you know, both of which have to be entertained. One is that he destroyed early stuff, you know, ripped it up, threw it out, or he cogitated these things very extensively and then he sat down to write them. Because remember, David's writing longhand. He's writing on yellow pads. So we don't have the problem that most people have nowadays with a word processor, you know, a computer, which is somebody who don't save their early drafts. Like, those earlier drafts, if they existed, existed physically as, as more sheets of yellow line, uh, you know, yellow line paper. We don't seem to have them. I don't really have the answer. You know, you'd think you would have the answer with all the time I spent with David, but I still don't really know whether there there existed drafts that were just a mess, or whether David was the kind of guy who, as I probably slightly more readily imagined, wrote really good camera-ready prose when he sat down to write, which is not to say that it was publishable or that he was entirely satisfied with it, but it was really good. I mean, it didn't look like most people's first attempts to sit down. I I think he had the kind of brain that could hold a plot pretty much in his head or, or a stacking of scenes pretty much in his head. He may have also used some aid memoirs, stuck stuff on the wall. I mean, we have some accounts of him like putting charts up on the wall and stuff like that. But, you know, one place that big ratiocinative brain probably played a role was in being able to see several steps ahead and where, where the book would go. And I don't know if he did the thinking for that in the shower. I don't know if he did the thinking for that early in the morning. 
you know, we have so many accounts of David unhappy. It's it's always important to remember there were plenty of periods where David was working really quite well, maybe not to his satisfaction. And I even include in those periods long stretches when the Pale King seems to be going along pretty well, if, again, not entirely to his satisfaction. So did, is there anything that he wrote that he liked the best? I mean, it was Infinite Jest, he, he, you know, his best work in his own mind. Did he feel like he had achieved what he wanted to achieve there or was there a kind of like a pervasive dissatisfaction certainly there's more pervasive dissatisfaction all the letters i have i can't remember anything particularly strongly praising of infinite chest he does in one letter to don delillo say that he thought it wasn't bad and that's why he went out to do all the all the kind of talks you know all the sort of blathering and reading and and interviewing otherwise you know he would not have done that but that's not i mean a massive Embracing, And then, you know, by 2006, he writes to John and Franz because he's been invited to a celebration of the 10th anniversary of Infinite Chess that he barely remembers, that it's a book he barely remembers. <laughs> the only story I remember him singling out for praise in Mature Life is he singles out the Suffering Channel for praise. He's very fond of it. You know, the one from Oblivion about the magazine editors and the man who, for whom... Great art comes so easily, you can actually shit it out. <laughs> but who, at the key moment when you know all the cameras are pointed on him, you know can't 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 do it. Um, I find that, you know, I mean, there's certainly a plenty of metaphor in that one. For sure, to, to, to go around. Well, and I, you know, you said earlier the the letters to Don Alello, which is sort of like a recurring trope throughout the biography. I, I didn't realize I knew they had been pen pals, but I didn't realize the extent and then like the nature of the relationship like DeLillo was really a sounding board for him yeah you know, have to remember they met twice I mean when my wife when she you know she would read the manuscript as, as I was writing it she's like well when did they meet and I'm like well they don't meet. Right. she's like this is so fucking weird <laughs> but it's not for writers I think there's a lot of writers who exist in epistolary relationships you know I don't know I mean I, I would have thought that that could be true and certainly it's a tendency when what you do is write to write Maybe they're not the quickest to grab the car keys and and meet at the, meet you know and meet at the Wendy's, but <laughs> I think there's something unusual here. You know, I mean, the the I know that the, the David had a conversation with John Franzen at some point before he'd actually met Don DeLillo. Some Franzen met Franzen, always the more normal one of the two. Uh, you know, I think met met Don DeLillo. Maybe he just sent him a copy of his first book and said, "I'd really like to meet you." And he met him. You know, so. And David's jaw dropped when Franzen told him that he had met DeLillo and he was like going out, Franzen was going to have dinner with DeLillo that night or something. And, and Wallace begged him to bring him back some, a packet of sugar with, as he said, DeLillo's sebum on it. <laughs> <laughs> now, we always have to recognize an element of parody in David. I mean, David was funny, you know. And so as ever with David Foster Wallace, you have to say on the one hand, that's a seriously weird statement. And it's also a comically weird statement. You know, um, it's it's both. And you, I don't think you're giving David's life a full reading if you try and make it one or the other. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's just a, there, there's a, not quite a, simil, a, a similar, it's not exactly the same kind of uh, intellect, but they're both very powerful intellects. Like, I think he probably, it seems to make sense that he would find some sort of kinship with DeLillo and vice versa. I mean... Well, I, you know, and I think I don't know that that friendship with with Wallace gave Delillo anything he particularly needed. You know, by the way, uh, I Did mean, it, it, I, I don't know that that's the case. I mean, more of David's letters to to Don survived than vice versa. The only ones that survived from Don are the ones he made copies of. If he was going to write something to David that he felt like hit the big themes of on lit- of literature, he'd make a copy. 
I think if if he was writing something saying, you know, um, something more minor, like, you know, I saw these movies, because they wrote a lot to each other about movies, you know, I really liked Magnolia, but I thought The Matrix was terrible. He didn't make a copy. So we don't know that much about what David did for DeLillo. And I think one of the things that drew David to DeLillo was it, and this is probably uh, fallacious, but but it was how David saw it. And DeLillo seems to have no needs, you know what I mean? He seems to exist as pure pure brain matter, producing these <laughs> books calmly every few years. That's how I think of him. I right, just think right. of him as like this like calm, like yeah, yeah, of course. placid, you know, genius. Right, living living in an ordinary suburb of New York and, you know, producing with great regularity and and without even a modicum of, of you know, of agita. But I'm sure, I mean, Don writes a letter to David where he says, you know, you, where you see this, I see only suffering and doubt. One still intuits that DeLillo's suffering and doubt once he'd gotten into the swing of novel writing was several orders of magnitude more tamped down than Wallace's. I mean, for one thing, he never had the period of blockage that or of dissatisfaction that David has for the last, you know, 10 years of his life. I mean, the really funny thing is that, you know, the cliche is that in DeLillo, Don, uh, David Foster Wallace found a father figure, and actually, when he actually meets DeLillo finally in a dinner set up by Franzen, I believe, um, at a restaurant called Colenio in on the old Lower East Side of New York, he's amazed to find that in fact Don DeLillo both looks like his father <laughs> and sounds like his father. <laughs> and I can attest the truth of it because I've spoken to both of them, and I mean, it's true. There's a lot of resemblance, a kind of low key, maybe monotone delivery, you know, um, that must have felt incredibly familiar to David. I mean, I'm not a Freudian biographer and I'm not giving free psychoanalysis and I'm not saying that David was missing a father figure because his own father wasn't there because I think his own father was there. But, you know, as Shakespeare writes, reason not the need, you know, maybe he had more need than even his father could fulfill. Right. Well, and speaking of his father, like what was his, uh, you know, family's response to you writing this book? Like were they uh, receptive to it and were they a big help in your research? They were a big help, and especially his sister Amy was enormously helpful, and also his his wife Karen. You have to realize, I mean, a book like this has begun in the midst of, of deep grief on the part of the family, and you cannot try to write a book like this in the way you would write a book about something happened in World War II. You know what I mean? You're you're in the present for most of the people who knew David, even people who only knew him slightly, and you're still in a period of life where they really can't believe that he's gone dead. You know, and in a lot of ways, that that informed the way I tell the story. I mean, you know, it, every love story is a ghost story is not really meant to sound like every any other biography in the sense that you know the way I imagined it was it was memoir written, but memoir written not by the memoirist. So you're meant to get really, really close in there with David in a way that you can only do with an entirely contemporary figure, because you know he. I want you to feel when you read the book as if he might easily, you know, appear at a reading that night. What you're doing is reading about a living, a living writer, because you're certainly reading about a contemporary writer. I mean, you're reading about somebody whose who's signifiers all around him, from the people he knows to the music he listens to, are all still present. It's only David that's gone. Yeah. Well, and you know, his uh, his suicide ultimately, um, you know, as it pertains to the mental illness that he struggled with for all of his adult life. Like when you, you know, assess that and like, this is something that like, you know, I, as like a fan of David Wallace's and I'm sure everybody out there, you know, you, you're, you're grieving it and it's a tricky 
kind of death because you, it leaves you with a lot of questions. But in reading about what he struggled against and how just brutally intense um, the depression that he was in was for him, like it, it almost seems to me personally looking at it, like, my God, like I, I can understand. It was like an intolerable thing to live with. Yet I've read, uh, I want to say I read something by Franzen where it's sort of, it didn't necessarily agree with that assessment or... No, I think, I mean, Franzen, I think he probably looks at it from different points of view in, the, in that essay. But at one point that I've heard he makes is, you know, that it was kind of a deliberate theft from his friends and his wife, a deliberate fuck you with them. I think that what's, you know, I mean, I, I think that Don DeLillo says that reader and writer look at a text from different points of view. And I think with with suicide, you know, family... Uh, and loved ones look at it from a different point of view from those who are further away from the action and maybe can think a little bit about what the person who committed suicide was suffering. And in this case, as you say, I mean, David left us a very clear record in an early story, The Planet Trilophon, where he describes what untreated depression is like for him. And he says, you know, this isn't depression as in my, my dog or my cat died and I'm really sad. In fact, sadness seems to have no zero component in depression as David experienced it. It's more almost as if I always thought about it, you know, because the description in planet Trilophon is, is as if every atom in your body was under constant attack, you know, and every proton in every atom in your body was under constant attack. Um, you know, so that, so that really the pain of existence is just unbearable, basically a full, a full blown, uh, massive, kind of physical sent sensual attack on your on every single cell in your body so if that's true you know at the end of david's life he goes off of nardle the antidepressant which had kept him reasonably well for 20 years and he goes off of it i came to believe more and more as i wrote every love story it's a ghost story i came to believe more and more he went off of the nardle because he was so frustrated with his writing when i had originally written the new yorker piece that was published in 2009 I gave some credence, more credence to the idea that he'd gone off Nardle because, and this is a story that his family had told, he had some sort of um, high high blood pressure attack uh, when he was eating in a restaurant in Claremont. And Nardle, or Nardle is a drug that uh, with, there are lots of foods you're not supposed to eat when you're on Nardle, from cheese to fermented meats like sausages or whatever. Um, and they have to do with how Nardle works in the system. But over time, you know, it's a hard drug to metabolize. And I think at least one idea is that David went off of the Nardle because, you know, it was such a brutal drug. He had to find something else. In other words, like he just sort of, the Nardle had sort of worn his body out. So he has this attack of high blood pressure and then, um, makes the decision to go off it. But, you know, one thing I learned, uh, was that he never even went and saw a doctor after he had this so-called attack in the restaurant. And he'd also eaten the dish he had in the restaurant other times. um, his wife suspects maybe he just had some sort of panic attack or anxiety episode. Um, that it wasn't dietary. The- it wasn't dietary, and it wasn't the the dread. Um, what's the word when you have high high attack of high blood pressure? It's completely jumped out. Of hypertension, or yeah, something like that. Or like, thrombosis. Uh, yeah, or- well, a hypertensive episode. Would be, yeah, like that wasn't what it was. I mean, I don't think we'll ever really know. But um, but clear, more and more clear to me is this idea that he desperately, desperately wanted to get back on track with that novel and he was beginning to feel that anything that 
either numbed his affect or, or created the objective environment in which he lived was an obstacle. I don't think he understood where it would go. You know, I don't, I don't think that he knew that he could never stabilize again. You know, one thing that I had no idea of when I wrote the New Yorker piece that I learned for every love story as a ghost story is that David had actually done this before. In 1988, he went off of Nardle, uh, and he went off, I don't think for literary reasons so much as that he was new to the 12-step program, and in 12 steps, uh, you know, some 12-steppers believe that the goal is to be completely drug-free, including prescription antidepressants, which I find insane, but anyway. Um, and so following that kind of, you know, David always wanted to be the best in his class, right? He was an A-plus student, he expected to be an A-plus student, so he'd be an A-plus 12-stepper, so he goes, went off of the Nardle, again plunged into an absolutely devastating episode of depression, was only rescued by electroshock, and... Um, and starting the Nardle up again. So, you know, he might reasonably believe, you know, 20 years later, 18 years later, that, like, that same series of events could repeat itself absolutely. You know, he could take the risk, see where he wound up, and then climb back on the Nardle uh, lifeboat if he had to. That's not what turned out to be possible for him. It just didn't take. You know... Antidepressants, prescribing antidepressants is clearly as much an art as a science. And he may have metabolically changed as he got older. I think Nardle itself as a drug had been reconfigured at some point. Um, so the old playbook just didn't, didn't um, pertain. So what you're saying is interesting. I mean, I think what you're sort of saying by implication is if you were in the same position, you would have done it yourself. Well, I mean, I just, it just strikes me as a very severe and almost, you know, unbearable illness. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I don't know. Absolutely. I, it, it's like not, the mag- it's not the like magnitude. the when, when your cat dies. It's right. Like, or, that will pass even when someone you love dies. Or, or just, you know, like there are, there are lots of different ways and reasons that people take their own lives and... It's always uh, awful for the people that they leave behind, obviously, but I just think that the burden that he was carrying, you know, when you read about it, uh, is just, like, overwhelming. <laughs> no, no, I know what you mean. I mean, it, 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 there, are, there are people who, you know, commit suicide rather than face social ostracism or, you know, a terrible secret they've hid from their spouse or whatever. And, and with those people, you always feel like, you know, what a waste, you know. Right. I mean, the conditions of human life are always, you know, they're always negotiable. Well, and yeah, and that, okay, that's what I'm, I think that's maybe what I'm trying to say too, is that in addition to uh, clarifying his struggle, it also clarifies his, his successes. And the fact that he was able to write as well as he was able to write in spite of carrying these struggles makes it even more impressive on, in a certain way for me. I think that's true. I mean, I think you also have to tip your hat to whatever you know, psychopharmacologist in 1985 thought about giving David Nardle because I mean, yeah. Nardle, the Nardle should get a big, a big assist, you know, right. Along with, you know, um, with his own gifts and his own pluck and his own focus and his own insistence that he was going to do something really amazing for literature. You know, when he wrote infinite chess, you have to say that that little pill that he was taking, well, it turned out, you know, he was always dancing on the edge of a precipice. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, you know, the temptation to to sort of put his foot over the edge and just see what was down there, especially because he'd survived it once, must have been, 
you know, it must have been pretty well overwhelming. I mean, to me, one of the tragedies is The Pale King is a pretty good book, even as published. And I can't see that a person would want to risk their life to to tie the things in that aren't there. But, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about the idea that there could have been other writers who could have read it. He could have trusted his editor with some unfinished pages, which he never did, you know. Um, but as DeLillo again says, you know, writer and reader read a work from different points of view and where you see where you see agency in his death, you know, a choice between unbearable suffering and, um, you know, death, his family sees someone who they love deeply and, you know, who fled their love and withdrew from their love unilaterally and secretly and covertly when, you know, at the first moment when he found himself at home alone. Mm. So what do you think uh, is his literary legacy? Like, how do you place him? Do you place him? But, I mean, if you had to, what would you say? Oh, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't have written the biography if I didn't think Infinite Jest was a major work, the central work of its time. I, I can't think of anything else. I mean, I don't know every book written then, obviously, and these things are always constructs. There might be something fabulous that I didn't see the first time. You know, it's a it's a rum game to try and figure these things out. But I can at least say that that for me, you know, Infinite Chest, this improbable, bisected, schizophrenic work with its deliberately informal vocabulary and its strange technical passages and its odd jokes. I mean, to me, it stands exactly where in the position that the millennial novel that will that people will care about should stand. In other words, I can't imagine it having been written 20 years before, and I can't really imagine it being written 20 years later. Like, it just seems to me that David did something new, something resonant, something that touches you know, all the traditional wellsprings of the novel from narrative to the evocation of human emotion and pity and yet did it all, you know, in a way that, as he would say, made, uh, you know, brought reality to a world that was no longer real. Is that a helicopter? That, that is. That's a sign. <laughs> all right. Well, they're coming for me. Yeah, they are. Well, <laughs> listen. I've said too much already. <laughs> I have to go. <laughs> well, listen, I tell you, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Congratulations on the book. Uh, I really loved reading it, and uh, I wish you all the best on the rest of this tour. Well, thanks very much for, for sitting and talking with me about it. Okay, you guys, there you go. That is the program. That is DT Max. Go get Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace. It is available now from Viking in hardcover. You can find DT Max online at dtmax.com. He's also on the Twitter, and his handle is at D underscore T underscore Max. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. And, hey, if you like the program and you want to donate a few bucks, five bucks, ten bucks, whatever you can afford, if you donate, it'll help keep it going. And you can do that at otherpeoplepod.com. Just click on Donate up there at the top of the right sidebar. You can follow the program on Twitter, at OtherPeoplePod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy, if you would like to read my recreational tweeting. Uh, the program does have a Facebook presence, and if you would like to email me for whatever reason, let me know what you think. The address is letters at OtherPeoplePod.com. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And uh, otherwise, closing thoughts, David Foster Wallace. Uh, I'm glad we got a chance to uh, hear about him. And uh, to take a moment to kind of, uh, I don't know, take a knee and uh, I don't even know how to talk about it. You know what I'm saying? Like it just sort of leaves me a little bit speechless trying to sum this up. 
But suffice it to say, uh, he was an, a, a very gifted guy who inspired a lot of people. He definitely inspires me, and uh, he is very sorely missed in the literary community. Uh, please remember that both of Abraham Lincoln's parents were illiterate and that Ivan Turgenev at age 19 shouted while on board a flaming ship, Save me. I am my mother's only son. I think that does it for now, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, as always, for listening. I do appreciate it, and I will be back again soon with another conversation. Hopefully, I will get a full night of sleep tonight. That's sort of the goal. Uh, maybe I'll wake up at sunrise. Maybe uh, I will drive down Sunset Boulevard at sunrise, or maybe I'll sleep through it. Or maybe if I do wake up uh, before sunrise, I will walk down the center line unblinking, and I will accidentally step directly into the sun. I will get sucked into outer space, into that giant orb, that giver of life and radiation. It will suddenly overwhelm me and swallow me whole. What am I talking about?